Hey everybody, welcome to another edition, yet another edition of this crazy thing we call a podcast. Tangentially speaking, I'm Christopher Ryan, your host. Uh, It's been an interesting week for me Uh, on the podcast front. I spent last night with uh, Dennis McKenna, not in a biblical sense. We didn't, we weren't in bed together or anything, but we were... uh, he did an event here in Portland, and uh, then we went to a kava bar afterwards, which may be why I'm feeling sort of jittery and strange today, or maybe just because it's Sunday, the Lord's Day. Uh, anyway, hung out with Dennis McKenna last night, the day before, and uh, we recorded a long podcast, um, uh, Dennis and uh, Andrew and I little three-way conversation there that I think you'll find very interesting. It's not uh, the podcast you're about to listen to, but it's in the pipeline. And uh, before Dennis, I sat down with Sierra Lynch, who is um, a humiliatrix who appeared very briefly in last week's episode. She sort of came in at the end and uh, we chatted for about 10 minutes and uh, she agreed to a follow-up conversation so she and i spoke for over an hour um i'm not i don't know exactly how long it was but it was fascinating she's a very smart um i don't even know she's enigmatic honestly um you'll you'll understand what i mean when you listen to that one uh you know she's one of the least uh nasty aggressive disdainful people i think i've ever met and yet that's what she does for a living uh humiliates guys and takes their money but only because they want it so it's this weird thing where you're you know cruel to be kind i guess um life can get very complicated in those ways speaking of sex uh very funny to me anyway story which has a long antecedent um there's a a woman who listens to the podcast uh, who I've received some emails from and we've chatted a bit. And she told me that uh, my voice makes her horny. So after listening to a podcast uh, a while back, she got all worked up and her husband came home and they had wild sex and then she got pregnant. And so she uh, informed me that this um, baby to be is my voice child because my voice is responsible in some respect for the conception of this baby, which of course, you know, I found a, to be a very amusing idea. And, uh, you know, who would have thought you could get someone pregnant that you've never even met, you know, just through vibrations um but the funny thing about it is it made me start thinking about things i hadn't thought about for a long time and i realized that in fact the first time i ever um helped a woman have an orgasm was over the phone i was like i must have been 14 something like that and i was um i had a girlfriend but we weren't sexual at that point but she had an older friend and somehow I met her friend I don't remember her name or anything but I remember she used to call me and we'd chat and like talk late at night and stuff 
And uh, one time we were talking and she started to, to masturbate and I sort of talked her through it. And um, I remember like, wow, that's the first time I've ever experienced that with someone to the extent that I even did experience it with someone. Anyway, it was just a, an interesting connection there. And then years later when I was in Spain, I remember the first time I... Uh, managed to do something like that on the phone with a woman speaking in Spanish. And uh, I felt very proud of myself afterwards because, of course, you can make very goofy mistakes, as I tend to when I'm speaking in Spanish, that will um, completely ruin the mood. So the fact that I was able to talk my way through that minefield was uh, quite an accomplishment. I had a funny experience a few days ago. I was at... Um, Peter Bogosian, I think is how he pronounced it. Um, my previous guest, the the atheist from last week's episode, uh, invited me to his place for dinner, which was wonderful. I met uh, some really nice people, and in, uh, including the guy who wrote, uh, what is it, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which I never saw. I was out of the country before that happened, but I've obviously heard of it. It's become sort of a mainstream cultural reference, although I really don't know what it's referencing. But anyway, he was there, really nice guy, very smart, his wife, kids, a bunch of other people, uh, friends of Peter's and his wife. Anyway, we're, we're sitting there at dinner, and Peter's son, who's this very, very smart kid, very um, astute, was asking me a bunch of questions about chimpanzees and bonobos and how we can know anything about our prehistoric ancestors and yada, yada, yada. This kid's 10 years old, by the way. And it was like one of the best interviews I've I've had <laughs> over the years. Anyway, I'm talking with this guy about uh, bonobos and chimps and everything. And there are about 15 people sitting around the table. And the guy next to me says, have you ever read a book called Sex at Dawn? <laughs> It was like that Marshall McLuhan moment in the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, I think it was, when uh, Marshall McLuhan shows up to start talking about his, his own work. Anyway, I didn't get a chance to give him a smart-ass answer because everyone started laughing and someone clued him in that uh, I'd actually written most of that book. And, um, you know, to, to his credit, uh, or in his defense, I should say, he was in the kitchen cooking when I showed up, so there was no way he would have known known that. He just heard all that bonobo talk and thought I might be interested, and hey, he was right. Another Sex at Dawn news, uh, the Japanese version of the book is finally out after years of delays. Very strange. The Japanese um, contract was the first one we signed, I think, after the U.S. English contract, and so we thought it would be out first. Uh, of the foreign versions. But um, according to the Japanese publisher, the tsunami somehow set them back a year or two. I'm not sure if someone's computer got swept away or exactly why a tsunami would delay publication of a book, but it did. And okay, we went with that. And then the next deadline came and went. And the reason this time was that the translator's husband had committed suicide. A very Japanese sort of thing to happen, I suppose. I hope the book didn't cause it, but, um, you know, it's another element in the strange lore of Sex at Dawn. 
Um, in, in any case, it's uh, four years later and it came out last week. So who knows? Maybe it'll be a bestseller in Japan and, and that'll get us invited over there to be on goofy talk shows eating disgusting things like worms or, um, you know, going to the, the penis festival in Japan, which uh, promises to be quite a good time. Additionally, it looks like we've got a German edition. Uh, we're sort of negotiating the final details of the contract for that, so there will be a German edition at some point. We've got a Turkish edition in the works, and I just received news a couple days ago that we've had an offer for a Lithuanian or maybe it was Latvian. I'm not sure. One of those tiny little countries up there. For some reason, Sexodon is very popular in tiny countries. Tougher sell in the big countries, but those tiny countries with only a few million people speaking their language, they're jumping all over it. So, um, yeah, Latvia or Lithuania, I'm not sure. But I think, I think at this point it's being published in both of those countries. So... If you're in the Baltic countries, uh, you'll have a, a version in your language coming soon. This week's episode of Tangentially Speaking is brought to you by Audible. Uh, go to our site, which is audibletrial.com slash sex at dawn to get your free downloadable audiobook that you can keep um, after your 30-day free um, trial membership. Definitely check them out. Uh, you can, uh, let me see, you've got over 150,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, and more. They play on the iPhone, on your Kindle, Android, and more than 500 other devices for listening anytime, anywhere. Check them out. Let me say that one more time. I have to turn my head to look at this. So that's when my voice fades out. Audibletrial.com slash sex at dawn. You'd think I'd have that memorized by now. But I don't. I don't. I'm a modern man. I have no memory whatsoever because I've got a phone. I try to recommend an interesting audiobook uh, each week. I've just finished reading a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years uh, by David Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. I see they've got that uh, at Audible. So that's an option for you. It's a long book, so it's a bargain. Uh, well, it's a, any book is a bargain when it's free, right? <clears throat> but it's uh, it's an excellent book. It's um, it's If you're interested in economic policy, colonialism, and sort of the way i mean think about money you know what the fuck is money anyway we spend our whole lives chasing it people live and die over it um it makes the world go round or so they say but what the hell is it it's an abstraction it's no more real than jehovah or muhammad or you know, the Buddha. It's something we, most of us, have agreed to pretend is real, which then makes it real. So it's some sort of mass hysteria. Um, and the minute you stop believing it's real, then it no longer is, um, which was nearly what happened a few years ago with the global economic crisis. 
you know, think about what happened there. There was, you know, suddenly economists were saying, well, you know, this whole thing's melting down. We're losing trillions of dollars of wealth. We're losing it to where? Where's it going? If wealth is real, how can it just evaporate into thin air? And then they say, well, we're going to bail out the banks by giving them trillions of dollars to shore up their accounts. Where did that trillions of dollars come from? It, it didn't come from anywhere. If the government or the Federal Reserve, whatever the hell that is, says we're lending you a trillion dollars, then they just did. And even if no paper even changes hands, right? It's a couple of keystrokes on a computer that just says, okay, you know, now this account that was all zeros before has a one at the front of it. And this other account that had the one eight or nine digits in, now that's got a zero there. Nothing's changed except a couple of pixels. And yet, supposedly, that saved the financial system from collapse. So if you're interested in this sort of crazy black magic that's at the heart of uh, all sorts of shenanigans in the world, uh, it's a very good book. I recommend it highly. It's... Uh, it's not too dense. It's not like reading an economics textbook. It's well-written. It's got some sardonic humor in it, and it comes as close as anything I've ever read to clarifying what money is, where it came from as a cultural concept, and how it's being used by the powers that be to maintain their power and keep everyone else in a state of perpetual servitude. I mean, you think about it, in the United States now, it used to be possible to, you know, 50 years ago, you people were able to have a job at a factory. One guy could have a job at the factory, you know, the Ford factory or GM or making um, you know, tractors or whatever the hell it was. And with that money, you could buy a house, support a family, send your kids to school, including through college, go to the state school, and retire with a pension. Well, somehow in the richest country in the world, so they say, that shit ain't possible anymore. Now you've got to have at least mom and dad working full time. Plus, when the kids go to school, they're going to have to borrow. Somebody's going to go way the fuck into debt for that. And now this generation, by the time they get out of school and God help them if they go to graduate school, they're going to be essentially indentured servants for a while because they're going to have to dig their way out of 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 worth of debt. That's going to take time, and that's money they're not going to spend on other things, vacations, cars, restaurants, whatever. So interesting to see how this country has gone from uh, a place where you sort of started near the surface or even maybe a little above the surface. If you're lucky enough to be a middle-class white person in America in the 50s, you had a lot of advantages. You're, you know, If you returned from World War II, you had the GI Bill, you had all this stuff which my friend Mandy has been pointing out to me in our ongoing uh, email debates about race and class and all these things. Uh, and now you don't. Now you're starting in a hole. Everyone's starting in a hole, which is interestingly similar to the concept of original sin, isn't it? We're all born 
sinful. We're all born with a debt to repay to our Western God. We're all born fallen creatures, I think is the the terminology, or fallen souls or whatever the hell crazy Catholic witch doctors say. Uh, In other words, you're born in a state of spiritual debt, and you'll spend your entire life trying to work it out, work it off. Um, And yet, then, then here's the other twist in it. Jesus is the great redeemer, right? Jesus died for your sins. Well, what the fuck is that? I didn't ask Jesus to die for my sins. I didn't even know the guy. How could Jesus have died for my sins 2,000 years before I even got a chance to sin? That doesn't make sense. So thanks anyway, Jesus. But, you know, die for your own fucking sins. I'll die for mine. Uh, None of which has anything to do with Audible. But get your ass over to audibletrial.com slash sexadon. Download your free audiobook. Get your 30-day or one month or whatever it is free trial subscription. And they'll send me 15 bucks even if you cancel it. And you get to keep your free download audiobook. So what do you got to lose, really, when you look at it that way? Jesus himself would not offer you a better deal. Uh, also, Shore Design t-shirts, speaking of Jesus, uh, they, you know, if Jesus wore t-shirts, he, they would be Shore Design t-shirts for sure, because they are so soft, even if you've got a spear in your side, you would still appreciate, okay, I, I gotta stop doing this, I'm, I've offended the hell, this must be some residual, um, atheist energy from last week, I'm going off on a Jesus rant here. Anyway, uh, Sure Design t-shirts, they're fantastic. SureDesignTshirts.com. And you can order any of their designs, I mean any of the designs that they did for me, on uh, ChrisRyanPhD.com. Go to the store. You'll see the Sex at Dawn, funky mandala-looking shirts. You'll see the Civilized to Death shirts, which are selling like hotcakes. Man, I got to write this fucking book. They're, I mean, talk about that cart before the horse, man. Uh, yeah, so sure, uh, sure design t-shirts. You got all these, you got paleo modern shirts at our store. You've got, what's the other one? Tangentially speaking. Yeah, we've got these funky tangentially speaking shirts. So even if you're not going to buy a shirt, you can just go and look at all the beautiful people in their uh, funky shirts there. Mom will send them right out to you. She's doing a bang up job. Uh, somebody tweeted how cool it was that mom sent him a note like, okay, your shirt's on its way. She does that with everyone. She, little note, this is Chris's mom. Your shirt's on the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I'm going to fire her, though, if she fucks up. You can bet it. Um, what else do we have? Amazon. Amazon.com, um, which I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about this Amazon.com thing there. You know, on the one side, they're incredibly convenient and wonderful. And on the other side, they're doing some pretty um, hardcore stuff with publishers. There was this big dispute with Hache that uh, Stephen Colbert got in the middle of. And, you know, the the idea is that they're they're trying to like sort of take over the world, drive all these stores out of business, and then they're going to raise their prices. So... I'm not sure how I feel about that, but if you uh, if you're okay with Amazon, or maybe you live in a place where there are no stores, Walmart's already driven them all out of business, right? So I'd much rather you spend your money at Amazon than at Walmart. I guess I'm not sure, but in any case, 
Amazon.com. Uh, we've got uh, some affiliate links at uh, ChrisRyanPhD.com. And in fact, people often write to me asking for recommendations. You know, what book should I read? What, what novels? What nonfiction? What do you recommend in this and that? So I put together a widget. It's on the website, um, ChrisRyanPhD.com. It says Chris Recommends, and there are a bunch of books in there. You'll recognize a lot of them are from guests who have had on the show. Who, whose books I legitimately really enjoy, including today's guest, Jeffrey Miller, who's a very well-known evolutionary psychologist. Um, his book, uh, The Mating Mind, uh, is one of the books I read back when I was researching for Sex at Dawn. Very interesting book, primarily about Darwin's second theory. Most people know only about Darwin's first theory of um of how evolution happens, which is natural selection, survival of the fittest, all that stuff. Uh, inferior organisms die out before they get a chance to reproduce, and therefore the, the genetics of uh, the survivors are what um, are propagated into the future and so on. But Darwin's other mechanism for evolution is sexual selection, which means, you know, and that's where you get the peacock tails and the colors of the, the male birds. How come the male birds tend to be the brightly colored ones and the females are more drab? Um, well, Darwin uh, recognized that that's because the competition among these species is among the males. So the males are um, evolving these more more bright colors and the big tail and the, you know, the different kinds of um, sexual signaling as a way to impress the female so that the female then chooses that male to mate with. Now, of course, this presupposes uh, a monogamous or nearly monogamous mating system, at least for each mating season, which was the big confusion if you saw that movie, the, uh, what was it called, The March of the Penguins, which was we sort of trashed in Sex at Dawn because it was held up as this amazing um, statement on monogamy and how wonderful monogamy is and the parents cooperate together and yeah, 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 you know, and, and take care of the, the egg and the howling winds of Antarctica and the other trudges off to work to, you know, get some fish and then trudge back 10 kilometers and then puke it all over the baby and all this stuff. But the truth is that emperor penguins are only sexually monogamous for a breeding season. And since they live into their 20s and they start breeding at you know, 9 or 10 or something, they're like 15 breeding seasons. So a typical emperor penguin has well over a dozen sexual partners in its lifetime. And yet, you know, here are all these Christian groups renting churches to show the movie The March of the Penguins because they're such great examples of monogamy. Well, it just goes to show you how you can play some interesting games with words and uh, make it seem like what you're saying fits the agenda that you walked in with. Also, speaking of sponsors, heard back from My Package, the, uh, the men's underwear company that has sponsored a few episodes of the podcast. And much to my surprise, to be honest, uh, apparently a bunch of you have bought their underwear. Um, I kind of was skeptical. I love it, but they sent me a box for free, right? Um and they're like 25 bucks a, a pop or something like that, which seems pretty expensive. But, you know, if you got the money, what what better thing to spend it on than testicular comfort, right? Um, anyway, apparently a bunch of you have. So, uh, you know, if, if you're up for it, let me know. Do you like the stuff? Is it working for you? 
um, because uh, they tell me that they've got a bunch of orders from our listeners. So thanks for following that up. I hope you're not disappointed with it. Um, you know, the price was the only weak point that I saw. The The design, the material, everything seemed really great to me. Um, and if you can afford it, then what the hell? Why not my package, P-A-K-A-G-E, and you put in the word, the code word sex at checkout, and uh, I think you get a, like a chance at a free pair. They're giving away 10 free pairs or something like that to our customers. So, um, yeah, let me know how you like that stuff. And the last bit of uh, bookkeeping before we get into this episode, uh, as some of you may know, uh, I've got this other sort of sub-podcast genre going called uh, Talking Out My Ass, which is just me telling stories from my wild and crazy youth when I was traveling and so on. I've only done three episodes so far, and they've all been free because we were switching over to this other server who's going to handle all the payment stuff. Um, the next one, which I'll record probably tomorrow, um, will be behind the paywall. So if you've already paid uh, in the old system, you're grandfathered in. All you need to do is go to the the site and um, enter the email that you used when you sent me the money. Even if you only sent me a dollar, I, I put you on the list. Um, and uh, if you can't get in, send me an email. Let me know. Chris Ryan, Ph.D., at gmail.com. Let me know and I'll make sure that everything's worked out for you. <clears throat> if you haven't um, signed up and you'd like to, just go to tangentiallyspeaking.com. That'll take you to this new server, which is Libsyn, but you don't need to know that. And you'll see a thing that says um, premium account or something like that, or get a premium account. Just go in there. You can do it for a month for, I think, three bucks. You can do it for six months for, I don't know what, five bucks. And uh, or, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm making up numbers here. But it's, I think, 20 bucks for a year. And that gives you access to all the archives, all the bonus material, everything I'm putting up there. So um, the next episode is prison. <clears throat> yeah, so far, first episode was high school. Second episode was the beginning of college and on my way to Alaska and third episode was in Alaska, hitchhiking from the southeast up to Fairbanks, arrive in Fairbanks, and promptly um, do something stupid and end up in prison. <laughs> so that's where episode four of Talking Out My Ass will pick up uh, <laughs> forthwith. Now, Jeffrey Miller, I met him in Austin uh, a couple of months ago. We were planning to do a podcast, but never got around to it. I did do podcasts with um, Tucker Max when I was down there, John Durant, uh, you might remember that, Daniel Vitalis. I think those were the three I recorded while I was down there, but we never got around to it with Jeffrey. And it's funny because I was a little nervous about meeting him because he is an evolutionary psychologist through and through. He uh, teaches at the University of, I think it's New Mexico or Albuquerque. Yeah, New Mexico. He was teaching at NYU. He's taught all over Europe. He did his PhD at Stanford. Um, he's very tight with um, some of the other major uh, figures in that field, like David Buss, and I think he's uh, friends with Helen Fisher. And, and a lot of these are people who... Um, 
um, weren't happy about Sex at Dawn because a lot of Sex at Dawn is a critique of evolutionary psychology and some of the fundamental underlying assumptions in evolutionary psychology. So when I meet these people, I'm always um, a little on edge um, and you know concerned that they are going to either hate me or um, just think I'm a fucking idiot which I may be. I don't think I'm I'm worthy of anyone's hate, but um, I'm certainly open to uh, the possibility that I'm wrong on things. I don't think I'm wrong on Sex at Dawn after like 15 years of, you know, going over the material, but hey, who knows, whatever. Um, but, you know, I met David Buss, I met Helen Fisher. Um, both of them were very leery of me, but I think after a few drinks, we all agreed that, you know, we're all nice people. We just happen to disagree about some of the stuff. And the fact is, I'm not an academic, so I don't really need to get that worked up about it, you know? I don't have a job to lose. I'm not fighting for tenure. I'm not, you know, dealing with that very political... There's a lot of aggression and nastiness in academia. And uh, as I said to, to someone earlier today, I feel like academia is a cult that I just barely escaped in time. You know, I got out just in time. Um, and so now when I hear people start using the jargon of academia, I, I feel like a, you know, like a um, like a Manson family member who got away just before they started killing people or something. It's uh, it, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, but anyway, so Jeffrey Miller is an academic, but he's not he's not a bad guy. I don't mean to this isn't all too <laughs> diss him of course he's a really nice guy and we met down there in austin he was sitting in the front row and i gave my presentation on paleosexuality and i was very pleased to see that we actually agree on on most things um the disagreements are not fundamental i don't think and and in fact there are plenty of ways that uh, he and I can both be right. Um, and I think uh, his theory and the theory that we developed in Sex at Dawn uh, actually um, integrate quite smoothly. And, um, and, and I think each one informs the other. So I found this to be an interesting conversation. And uh, Jeffrey is certainly a very smart, very interesting guy with fascinating things to say about uh, mating behavior, um, about consumerism, the way we deal with, again, back to money, the way we signal status and, and all these sorts of, you know, basic primate behavior patterns that we, uh, you know, kid ourselves and think that are sophisticated modern behaviors that are actually very ancient, uh, just dressed up in modern clothing, much like our bodies themselves. So I hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening. Uh, Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm brings us in. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. All right, I'm here with Jeffrey Miller, a famed evolutionary psychologist uh, who I met personally in Austin, what, what is that, three months ago now? 
Something yeah, like, something like that. The Paleo FX. Paleo conference. FX. Yeah, I was there speaking about the, uh, the paleo sexuality, um, and and you were sitting there in the audience, making me very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I was just staring at at Chris trying to freak staring him out. at my junk, man. <laughs> no, no, I I was nervous because uh, Jeffrey's book, The Mating Mind, is sort of a seminal text in evolutionary psychology, and one of the early books that I read when I was boning up on the subject. See how there are so many double entendres when you're, and you must get this all the time, right? Boning up on the subject, I, I, seminal text. It's like you can't get away from this shit. If if. Yeah, I teach a lot of human sexuality and evolutionary psychology, but my students just don't typically have the guts to make double entendres. So it's refreshing to do podcasts with with hosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't they don't have the guts to acknowledge that they're making them, but they're I'm sure they're making them. They're unavoidable in their own little minds. <laughs> in their own yeah, little minds. That's nice. Um, now it's I don't have my copy of the book here. All my my uh, research books are in boxes in my ex wife's attic at the moment in Spain. So I wasn't able to go back and and look at the notes I took. But I remember it was a book I engaged with um, quite deeply. I remember there was a lot of highlighting and underlining and margin notes and all that sort of thing, um, which you know reminds me of this funny. Uh, uh, well, this, this idea I had, which I, I think would be a great idea, and maybe it's something you know you and I could get rolling at some point. Um, I was. Have you ever met Sarah Hurdy? Oh, for sure. Yeah, lovely woman. Yeah. I, and uh, shortly after Sex of Dawn came out, she invited uh, Casilda and me to her to meet her out at her walnut farm and meet her husband and have dinner and everything. And um, so we were out there, you know, having cocktails and they walked us around the farm and everything is great and at one point uh we were in the kitchen she was making a salad and i saw a copy of sex at dawn on the table so apparently she had like you know freshened up a little bit you know look, looking at her notes and where i opened it up and just quickly looked through the book and i saw all these notes and you know x's and wrong and you know and all these <laughs> i mean some i'm sure it was positive otherwise she wouldn't have invited us over but um, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to to have like, you know, like your copy of Sex at Dawn with your margin notes and my copy of The Mating Mind with my margin notes, right? As almost like a dialogue between authors. Um, I'm not sure how you'd do it. That, that would be, yeah, that would be Yeah, like cool. PDF, yeah, to sure. like dual, like sort of a double PDF files or something where people can go through. And it's almost like a, a conversation, I guess, in a way. But anyway, The Mating Mind came out in 2001, was very well received. And, and I really don't think I'm overstating it to say it's one of the central texts in evolutionary psychology. Would you agree with that? I'd be far too self-deprecating <laughs> and humbled to claim that. But I mean, the, the exciting thing for me is that actually, I, I think it led to a lot of research on the attractiveness of, of mental traits and moral traits and language abilities. And, you know, before that, evolutionary psychology was really good at analyzing physical attractiveness. But a lot of people had kind of neglected the fact that, yeah, the mind is kind of sexy, too. And so finally, after Mating Mind came out, I was really pleased to see, you know, at least some people starting to research things like oh, uh, is vocabulary attractive? How about sense of humor, art, music, you know, 
Yeah, I, what I remember being struck by was that you, you know, like, uh, I think most brilliant ideas are relatively obvious in retrospect, right? And I think that for me, what was so striking about that book was that you took the conversation from a conversation about physical beauty saying, okay, we appreciate physical beauty because those are markers of fertility or or uh, a good you know provider or the peacock's tail shows that that peacock must be really strong and able to, you know to survive even though he's signaling to all these predators that he's there and it's a disadvantage all all that kind of thinking and you switched it to saying what about non-visible forms of beauty like intelligence and sense of humor and and musical ability how do these play into the mating marketplace and looking back on it, that's such an obvious question to ask, but it seems like nobody really was asking it until your book came out. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, Darwin actually um, thought about this quite a lot. And then in The Descent of Man, 1871, he has claims that human morality, empathy, evolved partly through mate choice. Music, he definitely thought, evolved largely through mate choice, sexual selection in humans. Um, and also language, he saw a role for, for mate choice there. But because his biologist peers back in the Victorian era kind of rejected sexual selection, they didn't really take that, that idea seriously, that sexual selection played a role in these human mental traits. And then when sexual selection theory got revived in the 70s and 80s by biologists who suddenly went, oh, you know, Darwin was right, females choose their mates, they did not revive Darwin's original insights about language, music, and morality being sexually selected. That kind of got lost in the history somehow. Um, so I thought of myself really as just trying to revive one of um, Darwin's great insights that I thought you know, intellectual history had kind of overlooked and neglected. Yeah, I wonder if, if any great intellectual figure has been more... Um, co-opted and misrepresented than Darwin. I I think the the thing that drives me nuts is when people equate Darwinism with materialism or reductionism or oh Darwin doesn't pay any attention to the role of you know mind and spirit and beauty in nature. That was all he was obsessed about. Like after the Origin of Species, after eighteen fifty nine, most of Darwin's work was about the role of animal behavior and perception and minds in evolution, right? How the nervous systems of pollinators shape orchids, right? How humans domesticate animals and shape other species to our needs, how females shape males. Darwin was absolutely obsessed with how um, nervous systems in evolution shape the future course of evolution. And that's a big thing that people seem to miss. Yeah, I I am particularly aggravated, and, and this is parallel to, to what you're talking about there, I think. Um, I'm aggravated by the extent to which Darwin is uh, co-opted as an apologist for capitalism. You know, you know Andrew Carnegie when he was setting up the uh, the library system in in the Northeast, you know, paying for all these libraries to be uh, in Pennsylvania and I think some other states in the Northeast. Um, the only requirement he made, the only book he insisted must be in every one of those libraries, was on the origin of species. 
because he felt yeah. so strongly that it explained why a billionaire could exist and should exist and how it was good for everybody that the poor were, you know, dying in misery and the the wealthy were amassing these incredible fortunes because Darwin said it was part of nature, you know, when he didn't, yeah. in fact. Um, but he, I think in a way, Darwin rode the wave of industrialization and the, the huge inequalities of wealth that come with that. Uh, and as you say, it's only a very small part of his message, which was that this sort of ruthless competition results in species and characteristics and so on. He also talked an awful lot about cooperation and, and mutual assistance and, and as you say, appreciation for beauty and, and um, many things that don't play into this uh, sort of neo-Hobbesian vision of, of the world that people attribute to Darwin so often. Yeah, I mean, two points about that. One is, in fact, Darwin took, you know, the cooperation within the social insects so seriously as a potential challenge against his natural selection theory that, you know, some intellectual historians say he delayed publication of the origin of species basically by 20 years until he was confident that he could explain cooperation in his sort of evolutionary system. Second, Darwin had a really strong sense personally of noblesse oblige, right? He was landed gentry, and he knew he was just lucky to be born into money, and that people who have the luck to have money have a sense of social, um, should have a sense of social generosity and justice and, and caretaking. And he, he would have been appalled at the way, you know, some American billionaires or kind of Ayn Rand fans would say, oh yeah, Darwinism supports uh, the fact that we should, you know, be shitty to poor people. No, that was not his view. At yeah, all. he was an incredibly compassionate, kind, uh, open-hearted man, from what I've read and over the years. Have you read? I'm, I'm sure you have his uh, his um, notes from the Beagle. The, you know, his uh, journal entries from his time on the Beagle. I've read a few of them, but not not thoroughly. It's, it's pretty beautiful stuff. Um, just his his thoughts as he's traveling around, with no idea that any of this is ever going to add up to anything. You know, um, yeah. you mentioned the twenty year delay and uh, and the sense of cooperation in in insects. Of course, the publication or the the, the presentation of of his theory was also triggered by those letters from Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, yeah, who yeah. sort of came up with the same theory. And interestingly, you, you probably know this, but interestingly, the idea of natural selection occurred to Darwin in, I believe, in, in, in England. He was sitting in his study reading. And uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who I think was in Malaysia or Borneo collecting specimens, um, occurred to both of them when they were reading the exact same essay. Oh, the exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. The same piece of writing triggered the same, you know, follow up step in both of them. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, the reason why Darwin really deserves a lot of credit is true. Wallace kind of independently discovered the natural selection principle, but Wallace never accepted sexual selection the way Darwin advocated it. And I think Darwin's real genius was understanding, wow, if animals have nervous systems and senses and can make choices, 
that's going to play out in terms of the traits that other animals evolve. And Wallace could never quite wrap his head around that in the same way that Darwin did. Yeah, yeah. And also Wallace was much less connected, as you say. You know, Darwin was born into the upper crust. He married a very wealthy into a wealthy family that his brother was also married into, the Wedgwoods. And yeah. uh and yeah, he had a lifetime of, of study behind him, formal study. Whereas Wallace was more of a an adventurer and sort of a working class guy, if I understand correctly. Yeah, Wallace had to support himself literally by going out to you know the South Sea and and Indonesia and and get specimens and ship them back to British museums and get paid for that. He was basically a, you know biologist for hire. Yeah, yeah, he was a collector and and, and one of his big uh, collections coming back from the Amazon, I believe. Uh, was lost in a either fire or the or the ship sank. It was a huge disaster in his life. Yeah, yeah, interesting character. He was also a bit of a mystic, as I understand it. Believed in ghosts and spirits and all that sort of thing. Well, here's the irony that you know Darwin felt confident that he he had sexual selection theory, and that's what could explain a lot of the human mind, including things like musical capacities. And because Wallace never accepted sexual selection, but because Wallace also respected the musical talents and abilities of all humans around the world, including, you know, quote, savages, Wallace was like, I, I, where does music come from? Evolution can't explain it in his view, must be a creator. Um, so ironically, I think Wallace's rejection of sexual selection kind of led to his susceptibility to spiritual nonsense oh that's quite interesting huh that's my that's my pet theory about why wallace went off the deep end a little bit and later right on. now do you think there's any you know, there's all this controversy going on right now with the nicholas wade book um and questions of race and racial characteristics being attributable to evolutionary processes um do you think, is there any basis for saying that some racial groups or, or regional groups might have a greater musical ability because of uh, sexual selection? Yeah, I th yeah, I do. I mean, we still don't know much about this issue, and it's still, you know, really understudied. But um, if you look at something like Irish musical talent, right, how does this little Emerald Island produce such a high proportion of excellent musicianship and vocal skill and instrumental skill. Well, it you know it could be it's it's a fairly isolated population, and that's just the way sexual selection might have gone in Ireland over the last whatever several thousand years. Um, so I think it's completely plausible that even slight differences in sort of what different populations pay attention to in sexual selection could lead to kind of dramatic differences over, over time. And we know sexual selection is one of the fastest, most powerful processes. So if anything results in, in group differences, you know, it's quite likely sexual selection is going to do that. We can also see this even in faces, right? If you take computer averages of faces from different men or women around the world, you'll get different kind of beauty prototypes, mm. right? So sort of a computer average set of a thousand Chinese female faces will look a little different 
than a computer average set of like a thousand Vietnamese faces. And I think that's because male tastes for female beauty just happen to diverge a little bit in those two populations. Same for male face differences. Same for skin color. Darwin thought skin color was partly under sexual selection. I think he's right. So, well, sorry, um, go ahead. And, and probably the same for certain personality traits and some cognitive abilities. Does your research um, support the, the notion that men are far more fixated on physical beauty traits, whereas women are more looking at these things like talents and sense of humor and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, you know, there is a genuine sex difference there, but I don't think it should be overstated. You know, the kind of um, college sophomore version of evolutionary psychology that says, oh, women want wealth and status and men want youth and beauty. It's way too simplistic. Um, both sexes, when they're choosing mates, seem to actually prioritize these the psychological traits pretty highly, right? So both men and women seem to be most attracted to traits like intelligence, kindness, um, sense of humor, adaptability, mental health, stuff like that. Now is, okay, and, and this is one of the areas where you and I might have some disagreements or, or uh, yeah, different views on things. Do you, now we're talking about mate choice, right? So when you, when you use yeah. the term mate choice, are you talking about who we feel like fucking or are you talking about who we decide to settle down and establish a family and, you know, form those long lasting bonds with? Yeah, it's that's a good point. It's important to, to sort of distinguish those. So mate choice generally covers everything from who you want to fuck short term hookups, whatever, to. You know, who do you want to settle down with long term, raise kids with, get married to, whatever. So it covers all of that. It covers it for both sexes. It covers it for, for everything from basic physical traits like height to super sophisticated um, psychological traits like moral integrity. But isn't that problematic right? to have something so, uh, to have this one phrase that's, that refers to so many different things, sometimes contradictory things? It can be confusing. So, you know, if you're talking about short-term versus long-term mate choice, then I'll just use the short, you know, the term short-term mate choice to refer to, you know, what you're attracted to for potential short-term mating, like a one-night stand or a hookup. And then long-term mate choice would be more like, you know, marriage. Right. Choice. And those are two completely, I mean, you, you mentioned mental health, right? There's the sort of joke like, uh <laughs> I'm going to sound like such an asshole here, but what the hell? Uh, like, like crazy women are great in bed, you know, but you definitely don't want to marry a crazy woman. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these, some of these things actually switch. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence, for example, that men tend to be more attracted in the short term to women who have sex with a lot of guys. Right. Right. And that's absolutely rational because she's more likely to have sex with you if she has, you know, proven to be willing to do that with lots of other guys. But when guys are looking for, let's say, a monogamous wife, the valence on that switches and that's a turnoff. Like, I don't want a woman who's going to keep sleeping with a lot of other guys unless, you know, you're polyamorous. And we can get into that later. Um, likewise, like personally, I have 
an almost irresistible fixation for short-term mating on women with borderline personality disorder. <laughs> I can't help it. They just, they, they hit my hot button. They drive me nuts. Yeah. I, and that is absolutely toxic. It never works out. It's a disaster. But I find it very kind of erotically. <laughs> I hear you, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I think this is, this is a really important thing to tease out because, A, I think it's the source of a lot of the, the most legitimate criticism of evolutionary psychology as a science. And B, because I think it's the source of a great deal of suffering in relationships, that people in their own lives aren't distinguishing the difference, you know, aren't working out the difference between someone I, I feel like fucking and enjoy fucking and someone I want to be my partner. They, they think like good sex is love, you know, and that, that leads to disaster almost always. A, even if the person ends up being cool, uh, you know, the, the great sexual passion is going to fade over time and then you're going to wonder what the hell happened. But B, because you're, you're making these choices blindly or even worse than blindly, you're, as you were saying, with the borderline personality uh, types, you're, you're focusing on exactly the wrong group of people you should be choosing your mate from. Yeah, absolutely. Um but, you know, there's a reason why borderline still exists and, like, why it's heritable, why it hasn't been culled out of the population, right? It can be a successful mating strategy, at least in the short term. It can get kind of enough support from enough guys that you can have babies. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of variation in which mating strategies work, and some of them work better short term, others work long term. Um, and you can't get a coherent picture of kind of all of human mating if you just assume, oh, my personality or my mating strategy is the right one. Right. Right. That's that's the death of science. That's that's just bad research. Um, and there are a lot of people in science who just kind of take their own sexual morality or their own personality or their own even their own mental illness as normative. And go. This is the right way. The, I'm the pinnacle of evolution. Everybody else is a loser and not insane. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I think we have to have a really inclusive appreciation of the whole diversity of different mating strategies that can work. Yeah. Now, now, getting back into beauty a little bit, um, and Darwin's conception of beauty and the importance of beauty uh, for the evolutionary process. Um, now, clearly. Other animals, uh, non-human am animals, are capable of recognizing and responding to something that we call beauty, whether it's symmetry or color or whatever. Um, but to what extent do you think non-human animals are responding to non-physical beauty, personality issues? Or, I mean, are chimpanzees attracted to we we know female chimpanzees are attracted to status but you know that's something other than beauty i would say but to what extent do you think uh female mammals are attracted to personality characteristics and kindness or things like that i think not much and and this is where you know the fact that we're mammals can actually lead us a bit astray the really good research on uh, mate preferences for aesthetic behavior has mostly happened with birds, mm. right? Things like bird song. 
um, you definitely, you know, there's decades of research and thousands of bird species, well, hundreds of bird species, um, songbirds particularly, whatever, four or 5,000 species of songbirds, where those, those females definitely have, you know, special neural circuitry for appreciating, understanding, remembering um, bird song, um, certain birds like the brown thrasher where the males know more than 2,000 distinct songs. That's clear evidence that, you know, in the ancestral history of that bird species, the females would listen to a male that only produced 1,000 songs over the course of a few days and go, he's a loser. That's inadequate. I need more My than God. that. I need 2,000 Are they songs, indigenous right? to Ireland? I can't remember why they're <laughs> indigenous, but... Because that would yeah, be interesting. Sure the Ir- <laughs> that would be cool. Something magical. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what's going on in Thailand that there's so much trans transgender stuff there? You know, I mean, it's they're famous for the transgender humans. And it also turns out that Thai marijuana is the most likely uh, to go hermaphrodite and ruin your crop. Well, that's fascinating, dude, but I have no expertise on either of those topics. <laughs> All right, we'll just move along. <laughs> Hermaphroditic marijuana. You don't know anything about that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you about it next time I see you. Um, anyway, so I, I interrupted you. You're talking about the birds, and it's tr- it's interesting. I, I have the same bugaboo with birds because so much of the insistence on the naturalness of monogamy then refers to birds as the sort of normative examples, right? Like, oh, yeah, of course there's yeah, monogamy. Yeah. Look, Just look at the swans. Look at the penguins even, which are not monogamous. But, well, um, but yeah, humans aren't fucking birds. And we don't build nests. Yeah, and, you know, the birds differ quite a bit in terms of, well, even the ones that are socially monogamous. And you, you know all this, but you're not, your listeners might not. They're not all genetically monogamous, right. right? Some some birds that are socially monogamous are also pretty genetically monogamous and don't have many sort of affairs or infidelities. And most of the the eggs that the male thinks are their offspring really are. But a lot of the socially monogamous birds, they do some genetic infidelity and um, or polyamory, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and some of the eggs in that nest are not the putative male's offspring. Um, So you can't take social monogamy and equate it to, oh, there's zero philandering or they're totally faithful or they never have offspring with other males. You you know, you can't, you can't confuse those things. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were making the point that, um, that the, the research on birds and and songs and that sort of thing probably, uh, contaminates our understanding of of other of mammals. Well, I think I was just kind of pointing out actually the birds are a better model for humans in terms of their aesthetic tastes regarding behavior, ah. right? So the female birds actually do appreciate musicality in the male birds. The female bower birds really do appreciate like physical right. art. Right, the bowers and the decorations that the males produce purely to attract females. So the female bower birds have a sense of aesthetic taste in terms of what behaviors the males can do that I, I don't think I can think of any other female mammals that have that. 
and likewise with the Arabian babbler birds in Israel. Those females seem to have a taste for male um, risk-taking and protectiveness and leadership that you don't often see in other mammals. Mm. So, for example, if a male Arabian babbler is at the top of the tree scanning regularly for predators, he's in a vulnerable position, but he'll give an alarm call if there's a predator. And that helps everybody hanging out in that tree. And the females will selectively mate with him kind of because he's doing the cop role, right? And that's kind of sexy, I guess, to birds also. Right. Um, so it's almost like they're sexually selecting for his kind of moral virtues, right. his protectiveness. And generosity because right. he's risking his own safety exactly. to help the group, which is also something I think that uh, chimps and bonobos do. There are alarm calls that, uh, you know, and also they call out when they find uh, fruiting trees and things like that. Um, so yeah. there, I don't know how that affects the the mating success. I, have you ever read um, Sapolsky's A Primate's Memoir? No, I've read other Sapolsky stuff, and I actually took a behavioral ecology course from Sapolsky at Stanford way back. That's right. Day, you you did your PhD at Stanford, right? Yeah, and your yeah. BA at Columbia, and then uh, a stint yeah, in Europe right. for several different places. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jeffrey Miller is certified smart. Everybody. <laughs> USDA, you got a stamp. You know, no, yeah. Notice how how subtly I kind of name dropped Stan. Well, that but that's perfect. I led you into it. You know, you you waited. It's good. You, at least, thank God you didn't go to Harvard. Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, those guys are really narcissistic about. Oh yeah, that would have come up Stanford. within the first two minutes. No question. You waited till the thirtieth minute before we got to Stanford. Well done. Well done. Thank um, you. Anyway, uh, in Sapolsky's Primate's Memoir, um, he, it's, it's a beautiful book. Uh, people often ask me for book recommendations. There's one for you. It's, it's um, sort of, it, it, I think it's alternating chapters. Um, it's all about his time in Kenya. He spent 20-plus summers going to Kenya studying the same troop of baboons um, in the Maasai Mara area. And so there will be one chapter about the baboons he's studying, and then the next chapter will be about his experience there and the people that he met and when he decided to go hitchhike down to Uganda and, you know, like all these crazy adventures he was having. And so part of it's half of it's human and half of it's baboon. It's beautiful. So you get science, but you also get the the memoir aspect of it, which is really well told. I, I imagine he must be a great professor because he comes across really funny in the book. Yeah, he was a really good lecturer and super engaging class. I disagreed with an awful lot of what he said and I was kind of an asshole. You know, I was that student always asking the hard questions. But uh, yeah, he's a great teacher. Yeah, I met him in Mexico a couple of months ago and uh, yeah, it was wonderful. He, he and I sat next to each other to listen to... Um, Richard Dawkins debate Deepak Chopra. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was quite a day. Anyway, uh, the point I, I, I was going to make about that book is he he talks about um, the baboons and the you know how they're very hierarchical and aggressive and so on. Um, but there were a couple of males that he noticed over the time he he was studying them and you know like one male in every generation or so who had 
very high mating success, but he didn't even engage in the hierarchical squabbling among the males. He described them like Alan Alda types, you know. They would just hang out with the females. They would um, play with the kids, the the you know the babies, and uh, and Sapolsky noticed that these guys would like slip off behind the bushes and get a lot of baboon pussy, and all while all the other males were fighting and screeching and howling and attacking each other, these like mellow dudes were just um, you know getting a lot of baboon in there. Yeah, they're lovers, not fighters. There you go. Yeah, so, so you know, it seems that, you know, maybe there there is a correlation between these personality, uh, if we can call it. What is the word for personality in non-human animals? Personality. Is it? There's actually a really cool, like the last 10 years, there's a huge amount of new research on animal personality where people can uh, measure actual personality traits, particularly in primates or any social species with pretty good degree of reliability and validity and it can predict things including mating success and so we're realizing oh my gosh personality is not just a human thing there are these important individual differences in social and sexual strategies and preferences and responses and you know all the other animals that have a decent brain size yeah yeah we're, we're so fucking stupid you know i mean you look at the way, as you were saying earlier, you know, like assuming that my way of thinking is the normative and, you know, that's so ingrained in us, even in scientists, um, that you just, you see so much ignorance uh, that's masquerading as science. I mean, for example, the idea that animals uh, don't have what we're calling personality, anybody who's ever lived with an animal knows that's bullshit. Right? Anybody who's ever had a dog or a cat or whatever, they're different. They're very different. And and when they have puppies within the first couple of weeks, you can see the differentiation in these little creatures that have virtually no experience as yet. So, I mean, it's the same thing where, like, you know, we study, uh, you know, dogs and we're studying them in terms of our sensory inputs, not in terms of the dog's sensory inputs, right? And sort of ignoring the fact that the dog views the world in a completely different way that is much more about olfactory senses than visual senses. Anyway, yeah, that's yeah. just a little rant there. So what? So you uh, you went from the mating mind, and then am I correct that the next book was spent? Yeah, I mean, I co- I co-edited a, a sort of academic volume called Mating Intelligence, um, which. Was the subtitle was something like um, Sex Relationships and the Mind's Reproductive System. And we actually talked about some of the brain as being kind of a reproductive system, the way like the genitals are, are part of the body's reproductive system. Um, so mating intelligence is really trying to cash out a lot of the mating mind ideas in terms of, well, what is the evidence now for intelligence being attractive or how a sense of humor works as an indicator of you know, how well your brain works or what is it about art and music? So there was that. And then the spent book came, which is more about consumer behavior. So let, let's stick with the brain for a minute. That Do you argue in, in that book that the, you know, the, this famous explosion in human brain size and capacity, is that related in some way to mating behavior? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my argument that the tripling of, of brain size in our lineage over the last two million years from like 400 cubic centimeters to about 1200 now was driven mostly by sexual selection through mate choice, but also other forms of sexual competition rather than by just, oh, you need to triple your brain size to survive in the African savanna as an environment. Um, and, you know, most of the theories for that really rapid increase in brain size, most of the serious theories now are really about some form of social competition. You know, maybe it's sexual competition, maybe it's broader forms of within-tribe competition or between-tribe competition, but everybody who thinks seriously about this issue thinks you need some kind of kind of runaway evolutionary process, some kind of positive feedback process. So you don't buy the, um, the cooking um, argument? I think cooking's super important, but it's important mostly as a way of being able to afford a big brain mm. rather than something that directly requires oh, a lot okay. of Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I, are you familiar with the stoned ape hypothesis? No, uh, no. <laughs> I thought that's what you're referring to when you said serious people, <laughs> because this may be considered a non-serious theory. But uh, yeah, this is a, a hypothesis um, proposed by uh, Terence McKenna, I believe, and his idea was that okay, you've got these these hominids who are uh, roaming the savanna, and one of their main they're probably scavengers right they're they're following the herds of ungulates the buffalo and and zebras or whatever um following them around and and uh, chasing off the hyenas or the lions and and scavenging from the kills um and so what that sounds pretty good yeah i mean that's standard right that's pretty much accepted and then but where he gets interesting is he says now, what grows in the shit of these herd animals? Mushrooms, magic mushrooms. So some of these hominids eat these magic mushrooms. And what happens when they eat the magic mushrooms? Well, first of all, they, it stimulates the brain in all sorts of interesting ways, stimulates uh, neurotransmitters and, and receptors, and all sorts of interesting stuff happens in the brain chemistry. Um, but it also increases... Uh, perception of pattern, pattern recognition. So you're more likely to notice uh, leopard, uh, you know, stalking you in the in the grass. You're, um, it increases uh, libido, so th- they're more likely to be fucking. Therefore, you know, there's a distinct reproductive advantage. And it also this ties into your uh, work. It also increases things like insight, sense of humor. Uh, creative ability, and so on, which we know from many scientists, including many Nobel Prize winners who um, attribute a lot of their best ideas to their experiences with psychedelics. And to say nothing of, you know, the explosion of of artistic achievement in the 60s, you know, the early Beatles versus the late Beatles, for example. Um, So what he says is that he thinks that these mushrooms actually uh, may have been a triggering mechanism for this explosion in brain capacity. You know, I think drugs are actually important in human evolution, particularly recent culture. I don't know how far back drug use went. Um, I think this, you know, this area needs a lot more research 
and you know hopefully with things like legalization of marijuana across America it'll you know it'll be taken more seriously as sort of mainstream culture but I think it's important to remember you know genetic evolution happens through differential reproductive success and even if a substance has certain effects you still have to ask okay are there other ways you could get the same effect without the drug what are the exact fitness costs and benefits of that drug was it actually widely available you know across enough environments throughout human evolution that it could make a difference um and that's where a lot of the the theories like this that are kind of intriguing kind of fall down where it's like well does that actually cash out into a selection pressure that would yield you know the magnitude of the results that you're trying to explain um, some of them might, some some might not. Uh, I think what you need here is more collaboration, honestly, between folks like, you know, if Terrence McKenna, and I, I did actually read one of his books 20 years ago, I now remember that. If he'd collaborated with somebody, like an evolutionary biologist who's kind of open-minded, that typically leads to much stronger theory. Yeah, right? yeah sure. And And, you know, the sad thing is a lot of scientists are kind of, kind of stick in the muds about addressing well not just drugs but even like sex yeah <laughs> and um and that's sad because it you know to me the more theories that are good that are kind of on the table the better the better off we are. and also i think you know some of the most fertile places to look are the are exactly the places that culture tells you not to look Right. Oh, you know, sure. I mean, that's why, you know, that's why Galileo and Copernicus, you know, that, that's why that was so th these things are sitting there in the shadow and the shadows created by the culture telling you stay away from drugs, stay away from sex. You know, don't even think about putting the sun in the center of the solar system. And so that's where the interesting shit is, because everybody else has picked the rest of the tree clean. You know, that's that's the only place you're going to find really juicy fruit that's still there, you know. Yeah, and the cultural taboos are there for a reason because they're identifying like high stakes, important issues yeah. that um, are uncomfortable and and where the powers that be, uh, you know, have some sort of vested interest in others not thinking too hard about, you know, topic X, right. Y, or Z. And that's why, look, hallucinogens as a class of drugs are every culture that's ever had access to these substances, whether it's ayahuasca or peyote or mushrooms or what have you, has seen them as the greatest gift of the gods. Except Western, particularly America, where they're penalized more strongly than second-degree murder. If you're caught with 100 hits of LSD with intent to distribute at a Grateful Dead concert or a couple ounces of mushrooms, you go to prison for more time in the United States under minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines than you do for second-degree murder. And that tells you something really important about the priorities and anxieties of you know, the vested interests. Yeah, yeah it does. And, and what it tells me is that societies that cherish and honor these substances are societies that are open to um, 
well, how can I put this? That what they do, the substances, is they lead you to question the reality of everything you think you know and sort of like start over again and question the, the, the fundamental nature of, of what you accept as reality. And I think that's such a healthy thing to do. That's what you're trying to do with your students, right? Every class, you're trying to get them to, to, to question what they think they know so that, they can, so that new information can come in and new structures can be built from the, the ruins, right? But for some reason, American society uh, is terrified uh, to have its people questioning those things. Anyway, I'm ranting. Um, you were talking about brain size and how the the size of the brain quadrupled over uh, a few million years there and, and how that's a very interesting and unusual um, process. What do you think about the fact that the the typical brain size has been reduced in the last 20,000 years? I think it's from about 1,500 was average brain capacity 20, 30,000 years ago, and it's about 1,200 now, I believe. Yeah, I, I think probably the most important thing that happened there is simply you get agricultural civilization, you get a lot of people who are systemically malnourished, like the survival rate goes up, but height decreases, right? Height goes down, um, as far as I understand, about the same time that the brain size shrank. Um, and then recently, as heights started to go back up to its sort of prehistoric normal levels, uh, brain size has also gone back up. So the people in the Middle Ages where they were kind of subsisting on you know, horrible porridge and the occasional kind of rabbit or whatever, <laughs> they were really malnourished yeah. and their brains were smaller than ours and they were dumber. Um, and so the recent increase in height and brain size the last hundred years is not like humans are becoming healthier and smarter than we ever were before. We're just regaining the prehistoric norm. That's that's my reading of oh, that data. Interesting. Yeah, re regaining the prehistoric norm, I think, is a uh, is uh, a recurring theme in my thinking these days. And I think a lot of people, like the the whole paleo conference, right? That's what it was about. That paleo effects thing. Uh, a lot of people are trying to regain the prehistoric norm physiologically and uh, in their relationships and in so many different ways. So, what do you think? Um, do you see civilization as a as a step forward for our species? It, it certainly in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I, I struggled a lot with this when I was writing the spent book that came out a few years ago because I have this really strong kind of love hate relationship with capitalist consumerism. Right. On the one hand, I'm so grateful that we have things like the internet and laptops and the microphone I'm speaking through and like cars and airbags and a food distribution system. That's fucking awesome. That's great. I love it. People get a little too caught up in it, right? If they make it their principal source of status and self-esteem and all their mating effort goes through consumerism, like that horrible pathetic psychopath guy who did the uc santa barbara shootings right a month ago it's like i've got a bmw why don't chicks dig me well because doofus <laughs> you need to cultivate the mental and moral traits that are genuinely attractive to women not just buy shit and hope that that'll seduce them um 
So I have a love-hate relationship to it. You know, we lost a lot with civilization. Um, we lost a lot of tribal, social interaction. Uh, we became a lot lonelier. We lost a lot of sexual spontaneity and freedom. Um, we, at least our ancestors who did farming, had to work a hell of a lot harder every day and every every month to get the food they needed. Yeah. So it's been a mixed blessing. Well, and people and who work in factories now, right? I mean, even yeah. even in the first world, much you know, without even talking about Bangladesh and and uh, you know where our Nikes are being made. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know everybody who's who's reasonable and insightful about this is, you know, there are very few people who are kind of advocating a complete return to like full paleo hunter gatherers. I mean, I know some people who are like. Oh, let's move to Alaska and just live off the land. Well, okay, good. You know, you can go do that. But I think most sensible people would really prefer to integrate the best features of, of civilization with the best features of paleo life. Yeah. yeah, and there's no way with the current population levels and, and the decimation of the natural world that that's even a possibility. So, yeah, I, I often say, you know, we're like animals in a zoo that we've designed. And my contention is that we've designed a really bad zoo. Um, And so going, going wild is not an option. The, the option is redesign this fucking zoo with an understanding of what kind of animal we're putting in there, which is ourselves. Um, But we're going to be in a zoo. There's, there's no way we're going to be in an artificial environment, but let's make an artificial environment that is as, close a replication of the natural environment for our species as we can. So what do you think? Now, I, I described you earlier as a, an evolutionary psychologist. Are you comfortable with that term? Oh, yeah. That's how I describe myself okay. all the time. Sure. Um, because it's controversial. And, and, you know, evolutionary psychology is controversial. And you as a figure within that world are also quite controversial. Um, are you cool talking about your whole Twitter thing? Or you want to just ignore that? Um, I kind of prefer to ignore okay. it mostly because I feel like it, it reveals a lot more about sort of culture and academia and, you know, moralistic outrage cycles on social media than it really reveals. Yeah, me. no, I agree. I, I think, and this is one of my, uh, uh, bugaboos. I'm, I'm constantly, railing against the culture of offense on this podcast um i won't do it again just because people have heard me um, do it so many times but you know like the words we're not allowed to use the things we're not allowed to say the observations we're not allowed to acknowledge you know it's just bullshit i'm not an academic so i do it right you know i say cunt nigger whatever i I opened a podcast Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago um, with George Carlin's uh, seven words you can never say on television and, you know, get into that whole thing. You know, I I completely reject the whole thought police, word police thing. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I don't work at a university, so I can get away with that, I guess. Um, but you do. And so you have to be more careful about that kind of stuff. Um, but on the other side, you are collaborating with a guy named Tucker Max, who is not known for his delicacy with the language. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. That's a, a very interesting collaboration. It's sort of, you know, reminiscent. Uh, before we get into Tucker, I, I just want to say I'm going to be meeting um, Dennis McKenna next week, who's Terrence's brother. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrence died of a brain tumor years ago. But Dennis sort of took the more um, academic route. He's a, a neuroscientist, ethnobotanist, a very interesting guy, Um you know, much less interested in uh, limelight than Terrence was, and more of a you know a scholarly um, individual. So, but also very um, uh, obviously very knowledgeable about these um, mind-altering substances. So, if you ever do want to collaborate with somebody uh, where you've got a lot of intellectual overlap, he would be. I'd be happy to introduce you to him. But anyway, oh, that would be cool. Yeah, I actually I saw. Uh some interview material with him on some documentary I was watching about ayahuasca on Netflix the other night. And it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know Terrence McKenna had a brother. There he is. Yeah, I'm reading, in preparation for the interview, I'm reading um, his book called uh, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, which is a a memoir Mm -hmm. about um, his life and, you know, a life lived with Terrence McKenna as well. Um, Wow, that sounds It is. It's it's a beautiful book. It's, It's really... Very touching because, you know, he's he's trying to thread the needle of he knows his brother is way more famous than he is. And most of the people buy the book are buying it to read about Terrence and how did Terrence become Terrence and how, you know. Um, but Terrence was kind of a dick, you know. Mm-hmm. So here's his brother trying to honor his memory with honesty and sincerity and yet also love. And so you can you can feel those competing emotions running through the book there's you know so much compassion and understanding but also acknowledgement that you know terrence was um a troubled aggressive egotistical guy um anyway read the book if if you get time it's it's quite good um but but let's talk about about you and tucker i i met tucker um uh, if anyone who hasn't heard the interview i had tucker on this podcast it's in the archives and I have to say, I haven't read any of his books. I know who he is because, you know, whatever you hear about Tucker, if you live in this country or even if you don't, I was living in Spain. Um, and I, I expected him to be kind of shallow, like one of the frat boy assholes that I hated in college. But I, I, he, I was struck by his candor and intelligence and charm. And he was nothing like what I expected from his public sort of persona. Yeah, that was exactly my experience. I mean, I only met met the guy a couple of years ago. I was in Austin for some social psychology conference and bored to tears. Social psychology conference is so boring. And I thought, I, I just, I need to get away from this. Um, I happen to know uh, David Buss, who's another evolutionary psych guy who's here in UT Austin. And, um, and Buss knew Tucker. And somehow Tucker and I ended up having... Um, dinner at a steakhouse of course paleo and i i had not read any of tucker's stuff before that and i just thought wow here's a cool dude he's an author apparently he knows a fuck ton about evolutionary psychology he's read a lot of books he knew more than a lot of my grad students did and you know intelligent articulate certainly socially um assertive I would I would use that word assertive, um, but we we kind of hit it off and thought, oh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, 
And it was after that, after I read his books, and I was having Thanksgiving with some of my cousins, and male cousins particularly, and we started talking about Tucker, and I said, oh, I met him, and they were like, oh my God, he's my hero. I've read all his books. I, I keep trying to do what he did to get women. <laughs> like, like get drunk and insult people and get in fights. And it doesn't work. It's bullshit. It doesn't work. That's funny. And I was like, I'm not sure he meant it as advice. Yeah. And then I emailed him and said, do you know people are using your books as advice? As if like you should do this. And he went, no, no, no. no. The whole point is I, I attracted women despite bite all of that and I said well we should do something that clarifies that for the young men who are being kind of misled by your cult of personality and that's when we decided to try to do this um, project together to do a book that sort of integrates evolutionary psychology but explains it specifically for young men in terms of understanding women sex and dating so that's the project. And it's a, a much needed project, um, not only to uh, clarify where he's coming from, <laughs> but uh, to address the sort of huge cultural vacuum, I think, that, that exists in the United States for young men um, trying to understand how to deal with women, how to deal with the, their own urges and, and fears and insecurities and um, there's there's something missing here, and uh, and and I think what you guys are addressing is is important. I, I really do, and and I think you know there's an interesting level in which I would argue that Tucker's thing um, isn't so much misunderstood because isn't being a drunk aggressive asshole sort of like having the exaggerated peacock tail. For sure, it can be. I mean, um, it can be you if know, you can works, pull it off. It, yeah. If 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 you do that and then nobody kills you, it's almost <laughs> like a costly signal. Exactly. Right? It's kind of a self handicap. Exactly. Thing, and right? and it's like, I mean, you, what's you can tell me? I, I don't remember who did the research, but there's some research showing that like uh, when women, how does this work? That women look at uh, photos of men wearing sort of like normal schlippy clothes and then in a in a suit and of course it's the same guy in the two different uh, wardrobes and the women are more attracted to the guy in the suit but then there's some there's what's the other thing when they're when they're told that the guy is an artist or something or or I don't remember or independently wealthy or something then suddenly it shifts and they're more attracted to him in normal clothing because it's like there's like the guy losing the game is at the bottom. The guy winning the game in the suit is higher. The guy who doesn't even have to play the game is the winner. He's the trump card. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of counter signaling. Like if if you know Johnny Depp shows up at a Hollywood restaurant and he's all disheveled, it's like he's still Johnny Depp. He doesn't have to make an effort in terms of right. grooming or style. Right. Yeah. But the rest of us, unless we're famous. Um, we we do have to make those efforts. famous or filthy rich or just have so much self confidence, right? That we don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, um, but but you know, this is important. Even Tucker now will say, 
You know, now I realize what was actually attracting the women back then was my intelligence, my storytelling ability, my sense of humor. It wasn't actually being the drunk asshole that was attractive. I, you know, he'll say he really was attracting them despite that. And yeah, drinking makes guys a little more extroverted and kind of active and less intimidated by women. And that can be helpful if you're, you know, kind of a shy guy in moderation. But um, the key thing is, you know, Tucker and I both realize, oh my God, looking back on, on both of our mating lives, it was, it was honestly mostly the sense of humor that was attractive. Right, right. Not, not what we well, thought. I wanted to ask you right. about that. Um, you know, because I, I get this question all the time, like what leads a guy to study sex for 15 years and, you know, write a book about it and all that. Um, and in my case, I think a lot of it was adolescent sexual frustration that I was, you know, from 14 till 17 or 18 or something, I, I felt like there was an essential uh, vitamin that was missing from my diet, you know, and I was, uh, uh, like most adolescent boys, I think, I couldn't stop thinking about it, but I wasn't getting it. And so being a relatively high IQ kid, I just started studying it, right? I just wanted to understand why is this bothering me so much? Why? You know, where's this frustration coming from? And, um, you know, that just led to a, a lifelong interest in, in the question because it, it's such a rich um, intellectual topic for me anyway. And what, what got you into this? You studied biology at Columbia, is that right? I did kind of a double major in biology and psychology. Yeah. But, you know, most of the psychology I did, it, was, it wasn't evolutionary psychology, which didn't exist at that point in the mid-'80s. Uh, I didn't even do a whole lot of kind of biological psychology. It was mostly cognitive psychology about learning and memory and categorization and decision-making, and it was neuroscience. I only really got interested in evolutionary psychology when I got to Stanford circa 1989, um, when two of the founders of the field, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, were postdocs working with my advisor, Roger Shepard. And I read their stuff. They were just starting to do the first papers saying, hey, we can use Darwinism as a, you know, intellectual framework for studying human nature. They wrote The Adapted Mind, is that right? Yeah, they were just working on that book, The Adapted Mind, an edited volume. They were just starting to give talks about their sort of vision of evolutionary psychology. And I thought, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever heard. This is awesome. I want to devote my life mm-hmm. to this. And, and so I have. Interesting. Um, but I wasn't that interested in sex at that point, except personally. <laughs> well, that, that's my next question. How, you know, I always get asked about my marriage, if, if I have an open marriage or this or that, you know, because of, of sex at dawn. And my answer, uh, I have the stock answer, which is that our, our relationship is informed by our research. And that's yeah. as far as I go with, yeah. you know, journalists. Um, are your relationships informed by your research? And if so, in what ways? Oh, for sure. I mean, one one thing that, you know, I learned is is I've always been really attracted to intelligent women. It's always been really important to me. If a woman's interesting and thoughtful and reads, it's a huge turn on to me. And I felt like there wasn't much cultural support for that or validation of that. So I guess one 
thing I've tried to do in my my own kind of research life is sort of understand not just why women are attracted to bright guys, but also vice mm. versa, right? To kind of explain my own preferences. Right. Um, and when I was getting into evolutionary psychology, my girlfriend at the time um, was also really into it, and we had discussions, you know, ad nauseum late into the night about sexual selection and each of our preferences and how they work and how they play out. Um, but honestly, the way I got into sexual selection as a kind of intellectual part of my research was like the least sexy possible way to get into it. Um, my first dozen research papers were about ways of simulating in a computer evolutionary processes using software called genetic algorithms. So I published a lot on genetic algorithms and artificial life and using genetic algorithms to evolve stuff in computers. And what my collaborator, Peter Todd, and I found was that if you sprinkle a little bit of mate choice into these simulations, like you let the little um, software bits kind of choose who they mate with or evolve choices, it actually speeds up the evolutionary process a lot. It kind of increases the creativity of evolution as a as a computational process. Interesting. Now, how, and I was I was so impressed by how that worked that I thought, eh, wow, I think sexual selection's underappreciated just at a very abstract level as a kind of evolutionary process, a creative force in the world. And that actually led me back into human sexuality. Very, quite quite indirectly. Interesting. Uh, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about cultures in which sexual selection um, is subverted by cultural norms, like you know, arranged marriages. Now, I, yeah. I guess that's yeah. probably too recent to have much of an impact on evolutionary uh, trajectory. Is that right? Well, it you know, inbreeding can mess you up pretty quickly. So the cultures that have a lot of cousin marriages you know, they, they have a lot of trouble. Like the, the Pakistani immigrants to Britain put a pretty big load on the national health system because of the cousin marriage. Interesting. And, and the resulting inbreeding load and physical and mental Right, problems. sort so, of a revenge for the years of colonialism because, I mean, who was doing the inbreeding in Europe before the Pakistani immigrants got there? The royalty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can... You can kind of fuck up a population pretty quickly with inbreeding or, or you know, lack of female choice or sort of disrupting, you know, the sexual selection system. It takes a little longer to improve any given trait, but even that can potentially go fair, fairly quickly. Very interesting. Listen, I could talk to you for hours, but I know you've got some time constraints here, so I don't want to. I don't want to drag you out too much here. Where I, I know you and Tucker have launched your your website. Uh, what's happening with that? Where's the book? Where's the you know? I know you have a podcast uh, that's happening now. Yeah, so we've got a website called Mating Grounds. Just Google search Mating Grounds. It's got blogs. It's got like. Lots of references, you know, books we recommend, movies and TV series we recommend. And also just a couple of days ago, actually, we, we launched the podcast, Mating Grounds podcast. You can see it on iTunes. Some fantastic guests we on there. You got Matt Ridley, I think, was yeah. the first episode. Yeah, we got we got Matt Ridley. Uh, we have Robert Green, author of like 
48 Laws of Power and Seduction. Um, I think you did an interview with Tucker, right? That's yeah, it's coming out yet. soon, he said. I just got an email from it'll, him recently. Yeah. It'll be out soon. Catherine Salmon, an F-Psych researcher, talking about like porno versus romance novels. Um, we're going to have new experts weekly. And also, uh, just Tucker and I talking through the content of the forthcoming book. The book's going to be called Mate, M-A-T-E, Mate. And we were absolutely astonished when we released the podcast. It, within 24 hours, went to number one in the health category on iTunes. It's number 30 overall. Yeah, I iTunes. saw that. That's so incredible. It's getting, it's getting a lot of, uh, lot of listeners, and I'm going to be doing a lot of other um, guest interviews with other podcasts in the future. And Tucker is, in, in, in addition to his other indisputable skills as, a, as an author and a, a public speaker, he's also a real wizard with um, marketing and media uh, savvy. Yeah, we have a really great team in terms of like podcast producer, marketing savvy, you know, publicists. Um, we intend to make Mating Grounds, you know, a serious standalone um, company that does a lot of different kinds of information products that help young guys understand women and themselves and human mating and, you know, how to cultivate all different kinds of traits and how to show them off effectively and I think by doing that, the ma the key point is we think it's going to be a win-win for both sexes, right? Um, and this is where we differ from some of the pickup artist stuff. Um, they tend to view relations between the sexes as kind of a zero-sum game. Like if guys get better, women lose, right? Or vice versa. We think it's actually a win-win, that there's a lot of unfulfilled, lonely guys out there who could make themselves into better boyfriends. And if they did that, they'd meet women and the women would actually be grateful because the women are out there complaining there aren't enough good guys to go around. Ain't that the truth? The major goal for our, for our um, business here for the mate book and the mating grounds is, is create a new generation of better boyfriends. So women will be happier and hopefully have like more fulfillment and more orgasms. <laughs> and who can argue with that? Huh? Really? <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Jeffrey Miller, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, always fascinating to chat with you. Hope to do it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. Take care. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Give it a rest, you're gonna die one day
slow down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground